0: Hey, hey, welcome to The Worked Podcast. I'm Mark Washburn, your host, CEO of ReadyTech. And today we're going to examine the future of the all-important employee and employer relationship. So I'm really fortunate today to have an incredible guest. He's a serial entrepreneur, in fact, and that's Daniel Cohen. He's the co-founder of Flare HR. And what you're going to learn is how the relationship between company and employer has evolved from master servant from the industrial age to a future state of a partnership. And Daniel's going to share some fascinating concepts around an alliance and tours of duty between an employer and an employee. So let's get into it. Daniel Cohen, great to see you. How the devil are you?
1: Great to be here and uh, looking forward to this.
0: should be a really fascinating discussion uh yeah just like to thank you for coming on at first uh i know you're a exceptionally busy man and uh i thought maybe you'd start by actually sharing with us uh, a bit about how you might run your day i
1: think as you get older you realize the importance of uh, balance and when you have 24-hour days you've got to use the time effectively and efficiently and uh, you start off that day uh, living in sydney with no other better place to to do that kind of 5k run and so. Uh, get that in every morning. Uh, uh, I live in Coogee and Mm -hmm. uh, run the beaches and uh, run up uh, through to Clovelly and back and uh, it's a beautiful start to the day. So I think um, life's about balance and if you can get that balance in at 5.36 and uh, then into the kids and off to work and get into work by about 8.30, it's a good start and it puts you in the right framework to really go in and drive that day hard so yeah, um
0: fantastic oh yeah I, sh- can i share my secret weapon with you
1: right, mate if you've got a secret power i'd love to hear it
0: sleep <laughs>
1: <laughs> i are getting better at sleeping we laugh about that but i think uh in our youth we thought sleep was a luxury yep. and i think uh sleep is the asset it is the secret power and mm. um you know we, we we sleep on that eight hours but uh it is so critical yeah. uh, to so Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm
0: going going to bed at embarrassingly early hours these days, but feeling a lot better for it. Totally. Uh, so, uh, look, what we're going to delve into today is is obviously the, I guess, a really sort of changing dynamic, quite a complex dynamic, I think, in the future of work, which is the relationship between the employer and the employee. And uh, yeah, just really love to hear how, first of all, you, you started in this area of interest.
1: Something that I'm really passionate about. I think uh, why I'm passionate about it is it's changing and evolving nature and how it shapes society. And so uh, for me, it started off as a, as a 21-year-old guy out of university trying to make your way in the world and, and figure out kind of what is that relationship. And largely, it was a, a subservient one to some degree, not in the terms of remuneration, but in terms of relationship. And I think it's that relationship 20 years ago that kind of got me to where uh, I am today and why I'm so passionate. The subject.
0: Yeah, I think uh, you said subservient there. I guess, you know, in many ways, previously going back decades, you could really see it as a sort of master-servant relationship. Uh, and I guess things are changing now, aren't they, where, you know, I guess business is evolving so fast and a lot of that uh, has, has been through technology is that, uh, you know, the jobs that we that, that we had. Uh, You know, it's harder to keep that job over a longer period as things change.
1: I think that's right. I think it's reflective of society and work and society are inextricably linked and balanced. And as we go through generational change, as we go through technology change, um, work changes at the same time. And I think if you rewind the clock 50, 60 years ago... Uh, We can call it a master-servant relationship, which is probably more reflective of slavery 200 years ago. But yet we evolve uh, through our history. And uh, when you look at uh, work, uh, when you started as an 18-year-old or a 21-year-old, we thought of work as tenure. We thought of work as uh, going through the process till we're 55, doing what the boss says, knocking Mm -hmm. off at 5 o'clock and jumping down the dinosaur like the Flintstones. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and then, uh, and, you know, at 55, we'd be given a Rolex and a golden handshake and said, thank you very much for your service, sir. Uh, I think times have changed and particularly rapidly changed over the last 10 to 20 years where that relationship is far more a partnership.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really interesting uh, term you use there, partnership. I guess previously, you know, you, you kind of had almost an, an unwritten social contract, between the two parties there was sort of an understanding of of loyalty and I guess that's really being undermined so tell us a bit more about the concept of of a partnership how you see that working I
1: I don't know if it's been undermined I think the social contract has changed I think that the social contract still exists I think the construct of loyalty is a good one but I think it manifests itself in a different way and a different shape and form and so really uh, that partnership you know, I've, I've read up a lot on the topic and uh, and feel the best reflection of that partnership was written by a guy by the name of Reed Hoffman who uh, wrote his book, The Alliance. And I think that concept of The Alliance where employer and employee kind of partner together to achieve something great is a wonderful reflection of uh, how work is today and how work is kind of moving towards tomorrow.
0: So uh, just to delve into that a bit, obviously Reed Hoffman, uh, co-founder of LinkedIn, and uh, I've d- delved into a little bit this, this subject myself and, and some of Hoffman's thinking. Actually, things that you put in place at LinkedIn. I think that the, uh, and the concept of the, uh, the alliance in some ways is probably an understanding that the relationship is probably going to be impermanent. Uh, and, uh, and the construct should be one that progresses both parties uh, you know, fairly and uh, you know, both are advancing, right?
1: I think that's exactly right. And I think those are the essence of of real partnership. When you create real alignment where there's interests in both sides that kind of connected to achieving a broader mission, I think that's uh, what Reid Hoffman speaks about. And uh, the underlying factors uh, that drive that is one of mutual benefit and one of uh, a concept that lacks permanency. I think that's the flip on its head of our thinking from a day Uh, yesteryear where we thought that this partnership was about tenure Uh, today we think it as about a moment in time and what Reid Hoffman calls a tour of duty which I think is a wonderful way of explaining uh, we're going on a mission together
0: yeah yeah I really I really get this I think uh, Reid's concept of the tour of duty Uh, I think at LinkedIn, they introduced the concept of um, uh, these missions that might last two or three years, you know, with with very defined, uh, mutually agreed uh, goals, uh, really defining the purpose of the the relationship. I think in many ways it suits the way work is done these days, which is often initiative based or project based with a defined start and end, as opposed to maybe the continuity of the same over a long period, right?
1: yeah and i think whether it's it's project work or whether we break down the monotony of a career i think that the tour of duty concept is one we practice at flair and one that we've adopted to to great success. It's the idea that we can break down a long marathon into short sprints. And whether we're doing that in an agile environment from a technology development perspective, or we're doing it in a broader company environment, I think the construct of breaking down a very, very long journey into much shorter missions is a wonderful way to align the interests.
0: Yeah, I think uh, partly, of course, probably generational as well, isn't it? I, I think some of the change, and I think a realization for me has been that, uh, particularly young people are looking for. I think they want to be partners with management, and uh, not just to be a cog in the cog in the machine, uh, but to uh, you know really sort of partner with that organisation and, and help it realize its goals, and of course to help it realize its purpose.
1: Uh, absolutely, and uh, in the Western world, generational change is is inevitable, um, but it's also something that. Uh, as probably people from the generation before have to kind of not only acknowledge, but adapt to. And so uh, if we look at kind of the millennial generation and the generations that succeed us, that notion of now, that notion of immediacy, that notion that kind of I can do anything, almost a sense of uh, positive arrogance, uh, I think is what shapes kind of this new way of thinking and I think uh, it has its yep. perks and it has its benefits and yep. I think uh, as people from Gen X or Gen Y I think really what we need to do is align together through an alliance to really drive the best outcomes from that.
0: Yeah I think uh, just to sort of delve in a bit more into uh, what Hoffman talks about is is really trying to create I guess a virtuous circle uh, where both sides are aligned to those mutual goals and the employer particularly is in continue to invest in that that employee and that, that individual to, 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 it, to, to help them move along.
1: It takes a leap of faith yeah. on the employer side as well because basically what you're saying is, hey, I'm going to kind of incur all this training cost. I'm yep. going to incur all this recruitment cost and I need to be comfortable that I'm going to let this guy go yep. in uh, after the tour of duty is finished. Mm. And, and that could be two years and it could be four years. And the reality is 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 that it's possible that the employee gains much more out of the relationship mm. it, uh, than the employer but at the end of the day, that's the investment that we make and that's what makes the partnership so successful. The notion that I'm in it to achieve something greater than myself, I yeah. think uh, it's the greater purpose and the greater good kind of argument mm. over here that makes the alliance yeah. such a strong one.
0: Yeah, I think you could, uh, you could probably argue that regulation and, for example, fair work in Australia, I think the, 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 the environment that we have probably sort of perpetuates The older model of, you know, the sort of, um, I suppose, assumed loyalty, uh, as opposed to uh, this sort of construct. And I think, of course, it works for the employee, if it is able to be sustainable over a long period, right?
1: I think that's what disruption is all about. I think that regulation will catch up. It always does, but it takes time. It does. And the reality is, is it's uh, regulation follows what society wants, and what is good for society. And if this concept of the alliance, the notion of short sprints, the notion of tourism, of duty is in the best interests of both the employer and the employee, regulation will catch up to enable. Uh, In the interim, what one has to do is work within the constructs of regulation, uh, play on the edge of regulation, and ensure that the ethical responsibility is there for all parties to succeed. And if that is hit and nailed, uh, um, only good comes from that.
0: Makes complete sense. I think what I'd really like to do is just to go back a little bit and talk about your own business uh, career journey so far and uh, and also within that how you sort of hit upon some of these themes and, and these concepts i suppose you know you've really designed a thesis a, a, a around which you've ended up building a business as well
1: yeah I, I i talk about my career as what we call the drunkard's walk uh it was a <laughs> it, it, it's a it's a journey that i think most people go on where one stumbles along and hopefully persists and persists and stays upright long enough to get lucky effectively and uh and that is the drunkard's walk, and so that's how I think about my career—an evolutionary one that starts kind of in an investment bank, uh, out of law school at the age of uh, 21, 22, 23, where you're getting that experience. And uh, 20 years ago, when when I was starting my career, it was more of that master servant relationship where you started at the bottom of the pyramid of an investment bank, and as long as you did your work and you, you worked hard and uh, did your time you'd kind of graduate up that pyramid. And uh, it was more of a yes-sir-no-sir no sir relationship. And uh, that shaped me in terms of, while financially I was meeting my goals, emotionally, physically, mentally, um, that was quite destructive in terms of my desire to be creative, my desire to build something and achieve uh, great things. and so really that led me to my next part of my career which was a startup, uh, totally the opposite, an inverse pyramid where effectively the boss in inverted commas uh, was not the master but rather the servant uh, and yet we were there to serve a greater purpose and so flipped hierarchy on its head effectively uh, where I learned what other people as employees want and growing that from uh, a garage effectively to Uh, close to a thousand employees. What I learned is is that people need different things at different points in times in their lives, and it was far more of a partnership. Uh, But we didn't have the technology and the systems and the structures to affect that. And so what I became very passionate about as I went through kind of the next iteration of my career was how do we kind of institute those structures, those systems, those technologies to affect this new type of alliance relationship. And that's what brought me to Flair.
0: No, I think uh, I've certainly experienced it in, in my own career and, and, and building a business is that when you start in a startup, you know, you, you get to, you know, you have those smaller numbers of people, 20, 25, uh, you can sort of uh, touch and feel everyone every day, right? And then when you get past that point, things start to change and that becomes a bit harder and you need to start thinking about how you scale that. Has that been a similar experience for you?
1: Absolutely. Uh, this is my second uh, growth company at Flare, my first one. Uh, Park Assist was uh, literally started in a garage building technologies for garages. And the zero to 25 uh, person kind of stage, that, that early stage of companies, uh, is really fun. Uh, it's where you get to make a whole bunch of mistakes and figure stuff out. And you get to do that naturally with a bunch of guys and girls together who are totally aligned to the mission. But once you move from that 25 up to 100 employees, that next stage, you don't get to touch everyone physically. You don't get to communicate directly one-on-one in the most efficient way. And so therefore, you are dependent on the culture that you've established, but also the relationships that one has with your team members to affect that message. And I think that's the biggest challenge in every startup is that 25 to 50 where you're really betting down the culture of the business, because that's what will ensure the foundations allow the business to grow in scale in the years to come.
0: Look, purely because it's a fascinating story, could you actually tell us about Park Assist? Because I know you talk about being in a garage, and I sort of picture this, knowing the story a little bit, you know, like Doc Emmett Brown with wild hair and these crazy inventions. But I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure it was similar to that. But, uh, yeah, would you mind telling the, the listeners a story? Because I think it's such a great story.
1: Yeah, the only difference is I'm, I'm a very, very challenged engineer uh, <laughs> with no engineering background whatsoever. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and the concept of building video image processing technology and using some of the most sophisticated algorithms in computer vision to detect and identify vehicles in climates from Saudi Arabia to Calgary... Uh, is not probably akin to some kid in an investment bank uh, sitting in his ivory tower. Absolutely. Um, but I think it all comes down to solving problems. And I think that's what people love to do, whether it's engineers or whether it's commercial people. It's really breaking it down to is there a problem to solve and is that problem large enough to build a really big scalable business on the back of and then lastly, can I change people's lives in doing so? And if I can do those three things, then that's exciting to anyone. It exceeds any remuneration that you'll ever get uh, financially. Um, it's what purpose is all about. Yeah. And, Could- and so that's, um, that's where Park Assist, and, and it's a problem that one I was passionate about and might not be everyone's biggest problem in life, but how do I find a parking spot in a shopping centre on a Saturday morning with two kids screaming in the back seat? Um, And that was a problem that I identified as a 16-year-old kid in uh, the late 90s and uh, one that I let sit for about 10 years and came back to in my mid-20s to go and solve. And uh, we started off kind of in a garage in Sydney with uh, Westfield and said, hey, if we can solve this problem for you, uh, what's it worth? And in the end, kind of the actual answer is far different, probably to the one that you thought it was going to be. But that's the process of startups. That's the process of iteration. And uh, the answer was is that, hey, I don't really care if you can help my customer find a parking spot at 9.30 on a Saturday morning, but if you can create kind of 200 more parking spots in my garage, that's really valuable to me. And so we were able to redirect and change traffic flows using red and green lights in parking garages, uh, really change the dynamic in the utilization of parking garages to maximize space utilization. And by being able to do that, we were able to not only help uh, the mother or the father at 9.30 on a Saturday but able to help the landlord as well and solve a massive utilisation problem for them where 20% of parking or 20% of, of space, land space is taken up by parking uh, in any destination. So no,
0: it's a great problem you solve. Now the story goes you pitched Frank Lowy the idea, is this true? Uh,
1: you never get quite up to Frank but uh, uh, Westfield has that servant-master relationship. <laughs> I sh- probably shouldn't say that on a podcast but... Uh, uh, It does go right up the chain and uh, from simple events like parking right through to uh, the CEO of an empire, uh, the Lowe's run Westfield in an incredibly tight way um, and a way where they have strong or had strong operational control of business. And so... uh, uh, we actually started uh, in the garage and and pitched the garage attendant right through to the mall manager, uh, right through to the regional manager and then right up to the CEO. So uh, uh, that was a a local suburban mall in Sydney and uh, took us to 52 countries around the world. 10 years later, um, putting red and green lights in parking garages uh, everywhere. So it was a good Australian success story.
0: Absolutely. Great, great, great story and a slight diversion, but I think a worthy one because parents like me particularly, I think, are very, grateful for the red and green lights so very very appreciative so uh just in terms of the um the alliance again to come back to that and some of the things you've been looking at doing in Flare, just like to delve into some of the things that the employers can do and should be thinking about investing in love to to to, to uh, for their part of the partnership and and um and some of those areas include uh, sort of well-being and the investment in that and more holistic, I suppose, other areas of uh, the employee's life uh, that maybe before were left to the individual. So uh, where would you like to jump in?
1: Yeah, I think starting with the alliance concept, we started with this notion of partnership between employer and employee. I think the other generational change that's happened is this concept of work-life balance. And so when we look at work-life balance, we need to look at it in the spectrum of today rather than the spectrum of yesteryear. Yesteryear was nine to five. uh, And uh, I spoke about the dinosaur on the Flintstones uh, with Fred diving down. I don't know if it was Fred or Barney actually diving down when the whistle blew at five o'clock. Life's not like that anymore. Uh, uh, Times have changed where we're connected 24-7. And therefore, what one has to acknowledge is, is that this concept of of compartmentalizing work and life is a fallacy that work and life is blended together. And so if work and life is blended together where nine to five no longer exists, rather it's nine to nine, what one has to take is different responsibilities in that employer-employee relationship. And the responsibility is not 12 hours a day, is 24 hours a day. Uh, that responsibility extends beyond just a job, it extends to a life. And so really it's about the five o'clock run at Bondi, but the employer enabling that. And so that can be done in a few ways. One is holistic wellbeing, uh, where it's not just about financial remuneration. It's about the balance between financial wellness, the balance between physical wellness, mental wellness, social wellness. That has become the responsibility, if not the obligation, in my view, of the employer. And so how does one facilitate that if we're asking for 24-7 uh, commitment from the employee. I think that's a really, really important construct to think about and has kind of tentacles of outcomes and possibilities from it.
0: Yeah, I think it goes way past perks really, doesn't it? You know, we probably, maybe, maybe this is where some of it started around things like free breakfast and so forth. But uh, these are really much more core life benefits, if you will. So uh, let's jump into, how about financial? Yeah. So, uh, you know, how do you, where do you see that evolving? Are we employers help helping us, for example, find the best mortgage? I
1: mean, absolutely. And I, I think the reason why that's absolutely true is is go back to where we earn our income. Our income is earned out of our employers, and so. Uh, there's a few ways we've been solving financial wellness since the dawn of time in paying our employees it's just how do we make that pay go further how do we make those employees we pay a hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is one dollar to that employee how do we make that worth a dollar ten and so that dollar ten can be either done through paying the person more or it can be done through this holistic notion of wellness. And I think uh, fiscal wellness, whether it be mortgages, whether it be how one manages their pension, which we're paying at the moment. Investment advice. uh, Investment Mm. advice. uh, It's already being done in the workplace. It's just being done in a very manual, non-transparent way. And I think uh, when that obligation or responsibility, when that alliance comes together, it's the transparency that brings the glue together on financial wellness.
0: Yeah, another really interesting area, as you know, ReadyTech has a a, a big footprint across this area of of paying people and payroll as is an area and we've spoken about it previously I know you're looking at it is this concept of real-time pay is uh, quite an interesting evolution where potentially uh, maybe you know I think this will probably start around shift workers and so forth that you actually paid uh, not in cycles of weekly bi-weekly monthly but in real time as in on the day
1: The concept of real-time pay, I think, is a fascinating one and one that Flair really has invested a significant amount of resources uh, because it's at the centrepiece of financial wellness. Um, The notion that employees get paid on an archaic pay cycle, be that weekly, monthly or fortnightly in this country, is one based and anchored in legacy, one based on a uh, cycle that was invented many, many years ago when technology couldn't process payments in real time. And this idea that employees are the largest creditor to Australian employers is a scary one at the same point in time. You look at the debt-to-income ratios and the credit card debt that uh, is kind of permeated across Australian society, and then you layer that on top of the fact that these employees are the largest creditor to their AAA-grade credit-rated employers, there's something wrong. Um, And it's a dangerous kind of topic to kind of really go and uh, disrupt because at the same time you have another overlay of payday lenders uh, effectively pillaging uh, the savings of the lower and middle class. And so um, the concept of changing pay cycles is a disruptive one, uh, one that really puts the power back into the hands of the employees in the way that they spend their money. But I think it's one that has to be kind of addressed with some degree of caution. It has to be done under the ambit of helping people save more and being financially well with their money, uh, rather than necessarily giving them money in advance. And so I think uh, the way real-time pay is rolled out, uh, the way it is instituted by vendors, by employers, into society over the course of the coming years... May really change the financial wellness uh, of Australians.
0: Yeah, one to one to uh, watch cautiously. I think mm. absolutely. Uh, like to go into uh, mental mental health. I think you know we we're in an era where. I think awareness for mental health has, has probably gone through the roof in the last few years, right? And uh, I think we're, we we all experience that day to day. really becoming now the the norm, not the exception, for employers to to step up and and be part of the solution for employees. So, just really interested to to hear your thoughts on on where you think this might end up in coming years.
1: I I think it's around balance, mental health. I I think it's a huge issue uh, and one that uh, you're seeing in the data right now, whether it be in absenteeism, whether it be in claims around insurance premiums, which are all uh, embedded in our superannuation funds. uh, You're seeing it in the data. So there is no doubting that mental health is a huge component of work. And going back to the original concept, it's around balance, but I think as employers, we have to start owning that responsibility at the same time. Uh, I think we can't just turn around and say the mental health of our employees is their responsibility. It comes back to the Alliance. And I think we've seen EAP programs, we've seen kind of uh, an increased awareness of the mental health issue. But I think uh, from an actions perspective, I think it's incumbent on employers to start doing more. Um, and start acknowledging the stress that work places on the individual. And if we can get that balance right holistically of wellness, financial, physical, social, I think the mental does come along the journey at the same time. Yeah. So it's not only about addressing one element of yeah. wellness, be it mental, physical, financial, or social, but getting the balance right between all four.
0: Oh, that holistic approach makes a lot of sense. You mentioned physical and you mentioned running at Coogee Beach in the morning. And I think there's uh, just really interested to add a bit of color to this. I think this goes past just gym memberships, right? So, so how might an employer think about you know what's the best thing I could be thinking about doing to support that that physical well-being of my team?
1: Look, I'm no expert on or, or medical profession on the topic of uh, physical wellness and its interrelation with mental well-being, but what I can tell you is that run in the morning gets your endorphins up and gets you 10x more productive. And so, if that's the case, it's not only again about providing. Dis- counted gym memberships; but it's actually instituting the time, the framework, the culture and the policies in order to encourage and incentivize that. Uh, at Flair, we have a basketball team that plays every Tuesday. Uh, at Flair, we have personal training sessions that happen twice a week. And it's not about a perk, it's about a way of life. And again, coming back to this notion of holistic wellness, if you can get those four areas in check, the productivity of your work just goes up exponentially.
0: I pick you as being quite competitive when you're in the basketball team. Am I right? right? Uh, I was
1: competitive as a kid, um, <laughs> but as a coach, uh, I think I've learned to kind of uh, cool those competitive vibes, but they come out every so often uh, when asked for that ball back.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. Let's, uh, let's get into learning. You mentioned uh, about career development before. So, Probably look at it through through the lens of the alliance. Mm. Uh, you know how, how should the employer look at that construct in terms of that career development, that learning?
1: Yeah, I think they've got to look at it as as a long term relationship. And so uh, we speak about the alliance as short term tours of duty, but the notion of developing that employee in the long term uh, exists for two two to two or three, two or four. Uh, the notion of tours of duty is not just a single tour but it's the idea that we can recommit and re for a tour to come. And so each tour is a learning exercise. That's the on the job side of things. But at the same time, there's the -the off-the-job development that needs to be more proactive than reactive. And that obligation on behalf of the employer, that investment on behalf of the employer, will actually facilitate not only this tour of duty, but the tours of duty to come. So I don't want people thinking of the Alliance as a single tour and then it's ended. What you should think about uh, when it comes to the Alliance, that tour of duty as, as a mission and the opportunity to re-up for a second, third and fourth mission. And that's where I think the learning and development element or the career development is so important. It's possible that that individual goes away and says, hey, I want to do a tour of duty elsewhere, and then comes back uh, for a tour of duty in five to 10 to 15 years time. And it's those skills that they got both on the job and then off the job that's so important to the overall investment return that one can make. And so uh, that's how I would think about learning, uh, a key part of the balance uh, in, in holistic wellbeing and uh, one that we invest heavily in and encourage all of our customers to do the same.
0: I absolutely agree with that. And, and, and I'm sure you know learning is uh, is one of my great passions as well. And um, I think what we're really seeing is this, this commitment and understanding of employers into a lifelong learning model and, and continual sort of bite-sized chunks of learning uh, to keep sharpening uh, people up and and reskilling and so forth, particularly in a fast-changing world.
1: I think broadening those edges as well. You know, if you look at the career that I took, uh, it started off at a point where I never thought it would end up. And I think we don't know what the future holds. And so it's the learning that allows us to actually do a broad range of things. And that's the difference between today's age and and yesteryear's age. Uh, Before it was one thing for 50 years. Now careers take multiple journeys and it's the learning that actually allows us to do the drunkard's walk, to zigzag through life across multiple things and multiple facets and get far more of a holistic overview on life. And so... Uh, if we don't do that learning, it doesn't allow us to broaden those edges to facilitate those experiences.
0: Yeah, it brings to mind something that I remember quite well in the uh, in the Alliance, uh, the work by Hoffman, and uh, talked particularly around really encouraging people to get out there and network and uh, to, to go to events, events not just in your industry but outside of your industry mm-hmm. as well, go and tap that network for intelligence um, and uh, I think in the classic way for the partnership, you know, potentially uh, be networking out there, which is part of the leap of faith uh, to go and potentially find where that next tour of duty might be.
1: I've always said one of our values at Flair is Bat 400. And it's this baseball analogy. We're all passionate about sports at Flare, not necessarily because you have to love that particular sport, but I think it's a great reflection of life. And so the Bat 400 methodology says rather do than don't. Uh, the notion of, hey, swing the bat, get out there, and you know what, we're gonna fail more times than we're gonna succeed, but if we can bat 400, we're the number one player in the majors. And so that concept goes to the networking development construct as well. You never know what's going to be out there. But let me tell you, if you do it 4,000 times or 400 times out of 1,000, you're going to find something and someone that's going to take your career to the next level. And I think that's the philosophy that uh, we love to employ, not only in the networking sphere, but right across work In, in swing the bat and have a go.
0: Absolutely. I think all of this really, if you put all this holistically together, all around career growth and fulfillment as well, you know, it all comes back really to the employer taking responsibility for the happiness of the individual, right? Mm. Is that how you see it?
1: I think it's uh, responsibility for the happiness. I think it's facilitation and enablement to make sure that that employee can be the happiest person that they can be. And I think we need to start. Uh, or stop looking at the relationship of, how do I get the most out of the individual for my particular task today? And more, how do I develop that individual for tomorrow? And if I can do that, the return intangibly will be ten x the return on the focus on the nine to five today.
0: No, absolutely, I can absolutely see that's the payback. I think um, part of it is linked to recognition as well, right? And I think that's one thing that certainly drives happiness and fulfilment in people. Uh, any any uh, any advice around that for employers and how we can use you know more, for ex- more more modern technology tools and for instance sort of drive that recognition?
1: Look, technology is an enablement and a fulfilment methodology but I, I think at the end of the day it comes down to the culture that we have and I think the framework is the mission the short sprints if we can break down long journeys into short sprints it's a lot easier to acknowledge the wins or recognize the wins along the way Versus the marathon, which takes 42Ks and a huge amount of blood, sweat and tears. (laughs) And for me, more than four hours for others uh, closer to three to actually complete. Right, And so if we can break down that journey into those sprints, recognition becomes a far easier thing to do and a far easier thing to facilitate. Uh, versus long marathons, which don't necessarily have the immediate wins. So I think it starts off at the framework level. Then it comes down to the technology level of how do I actually enable and facilitate that recognition. But uh, without the top, it's very, very hard to get to the bottom of the funnel.
0: So a uh, bit, bit, bit more into that, into the, the I guess, the digitization of the, uh, the model of the partnership and the alliance. Uh, and I know Flair's obviously spent a lot of time looking at this. Anything you can share with us around how that can be the enabler to a superior relationship between the two parties?
1: Yeah, super passionate about this. I think, Mark, you and I are both data guys. And so when it comes to the digitalization of the employee experience uh, and holistic wellness, I think it all comes down to the data that we have. Um, And how do we use that data for good, not evil? How do we be cool, not creepy? And I think that's kind of the balance that we have to strike in the world of HR, uh, the world of employee experience and people. I think we've done a brilliant job over the last 10 to 20 years and trailblazers like Salesforce have given us the data at the customer level to really go out and customize and curate experiences for the customer. And I think there's a big focus on customer centricity and putting our customers first. I think the next evolution or the next wave will really come in the employee experience world where we use the data rather to put our people first, rather to hone the experience at work where we spend the majority of our lives in a way that's, that's great, in a way that is curated to the individual rather than just being another number in the production line. And I think that's where the digitalization of HR goes in the future.
0: Yeah, I love that analogy from taking all the great work that's been done around um customer experience and, I guess, personalization and curation of experience into into the employee framework. Uh, Any great examples you can share that uh, you've been working on at Flair?
1: Yeah, I I think it starts off um, with you've seen the change in titles over the last 10 years. Uh, If you look at uh, HR, you used to have your human resource director as the head of HR, and you still do to some degree. But I'm not a big fan of titles, but even the movement from human resource director to people and culture is uh, evidence of this changing shift in narrative towards the people experience and the employee experience Uh, at flair what we're trying to do is serve up at critical moments in time in one's life, whether it be trigger points such as birthdays or uh, annual leave or maternity and paternity leave, whether it be starting a job or finishing a job. How do we serve up leveraging those trigger points using that context, uh, important parts of the employee experience and holistic wellness at the right points in time? And I think in payroll systems and in HR data, we have all the data on the individual. We have A lot of rich data, right? Huge amounts. And it's powerful data and needs to be used in the right ways. And I think we've got the context at the same time of when people are doing things in their lives. And so all the assets are there to serve up the best people experience that we possibly can. Now the question is, is how do we deliver that? And I think the work that we're doing um, in AI and uh, the work that we're doing on data analysis at Flare, kind of says, how do we take back-end centric systems that have largely been for HR resource administration? How do we turn them into people experiences? And so, um, some examples of that is is a notice on people's birthdays that are automated, saying happy birthday, or when they turn thirty-one and now there's a Medicare uh, levy if they don't have private health insurance. How can we enable? kind of the facilitation of that to ensure that people are aware of that Uh, albeit starting a job what are the top 10 things that people need to get into when setting up their pay and making sure that it kind of goes as far as it possibly can from a tax perspective or rather than being paid kind of in fortnightly cycles or monthly cycles how can we enable the pay cycle to meet your financial needs and cycle at the same time so Mm -hmm. I think um, that's the leveraging of context and data that Flair is so passionate about to serve up holistic well-being.
0: Fantastic. I think uh, uh, someone going on leave would be a great example as well, right? Uh, here's, here's top 10 reminders to truly refresh. <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, uh,
1: and, and, you know, leave's an interesting concept in its entirety. I think, uh, you know, you look at the U.S. experience associated with leave. They have two weeks leave a year that's mandated. Amazing. It, it, it's just It's just not enough, right, in order to really go out and make my body well again effectively. and I'm a big passionate believer that when you go on leave, you leave kind of your work behind Mm. um, and that you do go and detox and refresh effectively. And I think that's an important part of the healing cycle of the work-life balance. Yeah, I I
0: feel increasingly it's a a responsibility of of the leaders to, to practice what we preach around that, right? Totally. Uh, so um, you mentioned, you, you said about being cool, not creepy with the data, you know, and uh, I love that. I think that's actually a great maxim for life, actually. <laughs> uh, but um, I guess there uh, could be concerns here, as has as happened in, in other areas of technology, around creating the wrong types of biases, maybe prejudices, but potentially privacy concerns. Uh, any, anything that we need to be aware of there?
1: I think a few things. Uh, one is, is we need to get out of a conservative lens and see data as something that can be good right Um, that's not to undermine the critical fact that uh, one has a huge amount of data but privacy is at the heart of whatever we do so i think you need to balance those two things one is is privacy can never be compromised full stop and uh, that is the foundation of the usage of data but then you've got to say is how do i use data with that in mind to really go in and enable the experience and we're governed at the end of the day by the customer which is the employee And if we use data in a way that is perverse, if we compromise on the privacy factor, and moreover, if we don't deliver a wonderful experience, the employee will leave. And so I think that if you use privacy at the foundations of what we do, but then are governed by your customer, the employee, and see the employee as your customer, you can use data in a way that will really enhance their experience.
0: Yeah, you need to really wrap it up around, I guess, a, a framework of the right values uh, to, to really make that work effectively. Spot on. Uh, so um, now this is this is something, we, I, I know you're doing some work on this. I do find this fascinating is, is in the partnership and in the alliance, of course, along the way, particularly as more of these, I guess, core benefits uh, grow and, and, and uh, I guess employees take along assets along their way through that journey with that employer. Potentially, over time, they become more portable uh, through through digital tools and so forth. So can you share a bit about your thinking on that?
1: I mean, look, if you believe in uh, this concept of tours, you have to believe in portability. You have to believe in the employee is effectively a free agent. And so you need to design technologies and experiences with portability in mind. And so really uh, we see kind of uh, our work at Flare as having two customers, the customer being the employer or really the partner being the employer and the end customer being the employee that we both share that customer on. And so that end employee will one day leave that employer and go to its next Uh, tour of duty at another employer. But from a Flair perspective, they are still a customer of Flair. And so that's how we've designed our technology and experience. And I think it's reflective of society. As as we look at the movements from 20 years ago, we've spoken a lot today about today. But if you look at the progression over the next 20 years, I think the free agency concept, uh, which has really been instituted across sporting constructs around the world, will start to really infiltrate work as the way we think about it in 20 years' time.
0: That's really interesting. So you sort of see how, for example, a Premier League footballer has an agent and moves around and potentially has uh, different coaches along the way as well, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, And that's the support staff that goes along. We all have our support staff, whether it be our old employer, whether it be our mentors or whether it be our families. Um, But I think that concept, hopefully we all get paid like a Premier League footballer. But I think that concept is exactly the way that the gig economy is forming and that the way society is really thinking about work. uh, um, And we'll see that more and more over the next 10, 20 years.
0: Who would be your absolute ideal number one coach if you could choose one? you mark ha <laughs> ha you sweet man
1: um look uh, i've had a number of mentors along the way and i think uh, for me it's it's not one particular uh, person uh that would be my ideal coach i think it's about picking little things from different people and formulating your own pathway yeah. um, i think the notion of a coach is a good one uh, but for me at this stage of my career i I need multiple influences from yeah. different sources. Uh,
0: absolutely. So uh, I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of people and, and leaders and employers listening to this and, and also thinking, I love a lot of these ideas, but um, maybe thinking about uh, how they find budget or maybe a little cost constrained. I think, you know, we're probably living in an area of uh, probably low wage growth, right? And, uh, and, and And businesses feeling a little constrained. So how would you help business to sort of navigate that thinking in terms of the investment?
1: So a couple of things on that, and I think uh, that's what technology has been able to do. Technology has been able to bring down the cost of services to a negligible amount in the case of Flare Free. And uh, what great business models have done uh, around the world is found other ways to monetize technology uh, rather than charging for that software or that solution. And so if you look at LinkedIn or if you look at, uh, which Reid Hoffman obviously uh, founded and has written his alliance concept on the back of, or you look at Google, what Google and LinkedIn has done is use data to be powerful, be cool, not creepy, given services away for free that have a huge benefit to society. We're all on social networks. We're all on kind of search engines. And we're using those search engines in a way that creates good or on the whole creates good and so i think the idea of um giving away software for free which flare has done to be able to enable that employee experience and then leverage kind of the data and the context to monetize in other ways in the case of flare the sale of financial services um, uh, enables a relationship between employer, employee, and flair that is not only aligned, but that is cost-benefit to all parties. And so I don't think one should think about these investments as significant ones in terms of financial investments. I think one should think about the investments as significant ones in terms of commitment to cultural change.
0: So uh, just to go a little bit more into the payback uh, that employers should expect, and uh, you know, we talked about that potential actually moving back to the the concept of loyalty, which I guess is all around retention. I guess this is a attraction strategy as well, right? You, you're going to be able to attract talent to an organization with a really strong employee value proposition.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think we've got to look at it actually in three ways. It's acquisition, retention, and then it's engagement and productivity Absolutely. at the same time. I think that these concepts are thrown around at a high level, but I don't think they're actually analyzed in the detail that they should be. If we look at the greatest cost to employers across our business it's people and it's not only people by a factor of one or two it's an x factor associated with the size of the investments we make in people and if you have a look at major league kind of baseball teams or premier league soccer teams the amount spent on scouting talent on enhancing talent and building the facilities and the infrastructure Around talent, whether it be at the Etihad or whether it be at the Nou Camp, Uh, what we see over there is a huge investment in maximising retention, acquisition, and the productivity of our talent. And if we start to do that in uh, the corporate world or in the small business world, what you'll see is that investment of sixty to eighty percent of our total cost will pay back an X factor, not just one or two, in the short in the short term, let alone the long term.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Let's talk about the employee just for one second or the the worker and uh, how do you think that the evolution should be in the mindset of the employee into a model of partnership, alliance and tour of duty?
1: Yeah, this only works if it's a two-way street. Absolutely. And so we can put the obligation and should put the obligation on the employer to facilitate uh, this new way of working. But that needs to go through right to the employee. And so I think it does start with the employer. It's got to start somewhere to facilitate the culture and the shift in work. Um, And I think that employees have to be open and receptive to that change at the same time. We can't fight the notion of the change because it's a partnership. And so uh, employees at the same time have the responsibility and the obligation to go in and respond to that and say, hey, work and life are inextricably linked. Hey, this is a tour of duty and I'm comfortable with the lack of security associated with that. And by the way, this is all about a trusted relationship of fulfillment where my life and my career is going to be better off for going on this tour of duty. So let me put in the hours. And so um, that's what it requires in order to work. It can't break down at the employer or the employee level because an alliance is one where two people are engaged on a single mission or tour of duty.
0: Absolutely, spot on, really helpful. I think um just interested, uh, you gave me a massive light bulb moment really when you, when you talked about the fact that work and life has, has really sort of melded into one and as a result, employee needs to take more responsibility for some of those other areas. Uh, do you think there's natural limits to that and just how far uh, will the the employee work through into the personal life of the employee, you know, uh, in, in this more holistic model?
1: Yeah, I think we can put up those boundaries and uh, one defines their life in terms of partnerships in different ways. Um, I I think we all have our dark secrets and uh, we put up boundaries at certain layers depending on the extent of the relationship. And I think um, uh, that's natural and that's a good thing uh, to put up those boundaries. All I'm suggesting and asking out of this is, is that those boundaries are stretched. Mm. Uh, Those boundaries are stretched for good and defined in a place where the employee is comfortable with them. And at the end of the day, it comes down to what I put in, I get out. And so if we can stretch our boundaries and go on this tour of duty together, it requires a huge amount of trust on both sides. But if you are prepared to kind of extend those boundaries and put in the work and the trust, um, the, the results are, are emphatic.
0: Look, it's been fantastic getting to the end of our time together. What I'd just really like to do is just to get you to stretch a little bit further over the horizon and, and further down the road into the future of work. Uh, and um, yeah, what would how would you predict these arrangements look like and this framework looks like in, let's say, 20 years' time? I think
1: it's exactly what we've been speaking about where the regulation catches up. And I think what the regulation does is it facilitates tours of duty where we're contracted as opposed to employed. And I think the notion of being contracted and the framework around that with holistic wellness can be a really, really good thing. Um, I think it's the notion where we do these short sprints and we're awarded for those short sprints and, and I think it's a notion whereby we all have agents effectively managing our talent for us and so whether that be agents on the employer side scouting talent or whether it be agents on the free agent employee side kind of maximizing the tour of duty that an individual will go on. I think uh, sport is a great resemblance, as we said earlier before, for where life is going. And I think uh, the notion of free agency and free markets globally uh, will start to really play where I can do a tour of duty uh, from Russia to Australia to the US and everything is portable.
0: Look, Daniel, thanks so much for the discussion. I've just I've really enjoyed it. It's the, the thinking, I think, is super smart. Uh, and uh, I think this really has painted a a picture of a a much healthier future between the construct of the relationship, so thanks so much for coming on.
1: I enjoyed it. Thanks for
0: inviting me. Wow, wasn't Daniel awesome? Look, to you, the listener, I'd like to sign off by wishing you the very best for your own drunkard's journey as we stumble together through the future of work. For more from Worked, please subscribe on your favourite podcasting service and never miss another episode. I'll catch you soon.